Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The postcard shows the Twin Towers on fire, rendered artistically in black and white, haunting monochromatic carnage compressed onto 4x6 cardstock. The view is from Brooklyn. You can tell because the South Tower burns to the left. Smoke rises up to a jagged line mimicking the edge of a burnt piece of paper. At the top, in calligraphy, it says, Everyone who knew me before 9-11 believes I'm dead. From iHeartRadio, this is Missing on 9-11, the story of one woman who vanished on the eve of history and my quest to find her. I'm your host, John Walzak. In November 2004, a man named Frank Warren created an art project called Post Secret. The idea was simple and brilliant. Write a secret on a postcard, mail it to him anonymously, and if it was good, he would post it on his blog. It quickly blew up, landing Frank's speaking gigs and book deals, and permeating pop culture too, appearing, most notably, in the music video for the hit 2005 song, Dirty Little Secret, by the All-American Rejects. Post Secret had something for everyone. Writers got catharsis, a chance to share deep, dark, personal truths. Readers got voyeurism, plus an opportunity to see who shared their secrets. And Frank got thousands of postcards, including the 9-11 postcard. By now, it's one of his most famous. He even incorporated it into a TED Talk. It's a remarkable, mind-boggling, singular secret. The idea that someone, quote, died on 9-11 But hey, guess what? They're alive? I mean, it's bonkers. 
Of course, I wanted to learn more about the postcard. When was it mailed? Where was it mailed from? Could Sneha have sent it? And by the way, I'll put it on Twitter at at John Walzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. In June 2006, Sneha's disappearance got a burst of attention when New York Magazine ran an article on it. That article by Mark Fass is the reason why it didn't just fade away, why it lives on today. For the first time, people seriously considered the idea that Sneha used 9-11 to run away, to voluntarily disappear, to essentially fake her own death. So I wanted to know, did Frank get the mysterious postcard before or after the article ran? If before, I'd be more inclined to think it's legit. If after though, especially right after, I'd be more inclined to think it's a hoax, a fake bullshit secret sent in by a publicity-hungry crank. Unfortunately, Frank wouldn't tell me when he got the postcard, so I bypassed him. www.archive.org, copies of his old site. And then there it was, the postcard, first published on March 4th, 2005, 15 months before the New York article. Now, obviously, that doesn't prove it's legit. But for argument's sake, let's say that it is. Someone thought to have died on 9-11 actually survived and never came forward, except through this anonymous postcard. Well, who sent it? The list of possible candidates is extremely short because there's irrefutable proof that most 9-11 victims died. DNA, eyewitnesses, phone calls, etc. With Sneha, though, there's nothing, no evidence. So, yes, she is at the top of my list of who could have sent it, if it's legit. Let me say also that although Frank wouldn't tell me when he got the postcard, he did send me a high-resolution image of it. And not gonna lie, the first thing I did was throw it into Photoshop to see if I could make out anything like a postmark through the image on the front. Alas, no luck. But it was worth a shot. Finally, I asked an art expert to look at the postcard. He told me that whoever drew the towers likely used either a graphite pencil or soft charcoal. That stuck with me. Remember, in the mid-90s, Sneha left med school for a year and spent six or seven months painting in Italy. Many people who knew her, including Dr. E, one of her supervisors at Cabrini Medical Center, said she wanted to be an artist, not a doctor. I uh, can't describe her paintings in detail. I vaguely remember. I just remember she was always sketching, and I remember commenting at times that they were beautiful. And uh, she would write. She liked writing. And so I saw some of her writings. She, like, kind of showed them to me when she was helping me write something. So When you say sketching, um, do you remember, was it pencil, charcoal? What? Pencil or charcoal? I don't remember colors. The first time I spoke to Dr. E by phone, I asked if she knew about the postcard, if she had ever seen it. She said no. So I emailed it to her. Wow. Yeah, it's really creepy, right? That's very bizarre for whoever said that. Whoever sent that. <laughs> Dr. E has long believed that Sneha used 9-11 as cover to escape, to start a new life. The Sneha she knew, both professionally and personally, was unhappy. She wanted to escape. Is it just your gut feeling, or, or do you have you have anything to indicate that that might have been the case? No, so just a gut feeling, but just knowing her, I'm like, oh, there's no way. <laughs> like, she's out there. I really believe she's alive. That's just my strong, strong gut feeling. I just knew her personality too well. I don't see her... I just don't see her running to building number one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't see her doing that. And number two, I... She was so, like, kind of manipulative and bright and, you know, she could play people, you know. Mark Bogatin, the attorney hired by Sneha's husband, Ron, after 9-11, doesn't buy it. Could be that she ran away for whatever reason and was living in Europe, you know, drinking espresso at some cafe somewhere in either large, medium-sized or small European city. That's one possibility. But in order for that to be feasible, there would have to be, she'd have to have some means of support. There'd have to have been some type of evidence of preparation, bank withdrawals, credit card expenditures, anything like that. And they went through all the credit card records, financial records, bank records. They went through, you know, whatever computer 
history she had and things like that. And there was no evidence of any type of preparation, any means of financial preparation for any type of fugitive, secretive existence. And also there were just some basic things. Like when Ron got to the apartment, her travel papers were there, her passport was in the apartment. I believe even things like her eyeglasses were in the apartment. So people that say that she just decided, she saw what happened and decided to up and flee and take advantage of the moment. That's No, that's crazy. <laughs> that's a, how many people did that? Did anybody do that? Oh my God, look at this. The train center. I'm going to Paris and nobody will find me now. I'm not, I'm not taking my glasses or my passport. No, no. That's crazy. It's just ludicrous. He's not wrong. It is ludicrous. At least the idea. Retired NYPD detective Richard Stark, who investigated the case, also thinks it's crazy. How does somebody just get a, a new passport, no ID, that quick, and just disappear? Unless she planned it. But I don't see that either. Would that be so hard, though, if I'm having personal problems? And, and you know, this is 20 years ago, so when technology was more in its infancy, too. What convinces you that it would be so difficult to disappear? Because so many people, so many thousands and tens of thousands of people do it every year. What makes you doubt that in particular? Because of the closeness to her mother. Her father, she couldn't do that to her family. Not Ron, maybe, I don't know. But her, her mother and father, no way. They were a very close family. Just like the photos they saw. And, and she talked to her mother every day. This is the key piece of evidence most people cite to write off the idea that Sneha used 9-11 as cover to voluntarily disappear. She loved her mom. She wouldn't do that to her family. I get it. But every year, all over the globe, people run off. It's an age-old story. Fathers abandon children, husbands their wives, children their parents. No one wants to think someone they love could just run away. But thousands do, every year. Like Detective Stark, you might say, well, what about her passport, her credit card, her glasses? Wouldn't she need papers? Wouldn't she need help? I'll concede that, yes, it would be nearly impossible for someone to spontaneously run off and escape detection without some help. But remember, Sneha stayed somewhere on the night of September 10th. She stayed with someone, and that person never came forward. So can I see that person helping Sneha escape? Yes, I can. Say Sneha woke up on 9-11, turned on a TV, and saw the attacks. Maybe she decided to stay put wherever she slept the night of the 10th, and then later decided not to go home. Or say she was walking home, saw the attacks, turned away, and melted back into the city. Then what? Multiple studies have examined the behavior of people who voluntarily and spontaneously disappeared and were later found. In a paper titled, Living Absence, The Strange Geographies of Missing People, one woman said, I felt free when I left. As soon as I walked out the door, I felt free. Researchers found that women were more likely than men to plan an absence, but planning usually occupied only a small window of time. Many people who chose to disappear did so without any idea of how long they would actually be gone. They just decided to leave, then figured out what to do. Most began by walking in urban environments. One woman told researchers, My mind was going 19 to a dozen. I couldn't sit still. I had to keep moving because my mind was in such disarray. The pacing was to try to keep up with the anxiety I was feeling inside. I just desperately needed to keep on the move all the time. And then, when I started walking along in the streets, I was walking really quite quickly. Initially, the decision to move was just a physical need to move. The pacing up and down and the stomach churning was getting so intense. It was painful. So the only thing that seemed to relieve it was walking fast. Researchers learned that people who voluntarily vanished went to great lengths to keep their location secret. They changed their physical appearance and clothes. They wore dark clothing and or clothing to conceal their face. They used fake names. And their immediate journeys were nonlinear, characterized by circles, loops, or squares. Lost in chaotic thought, When considering whether or not to return home to family and friends, they were racked with guilt, uncertainty, and fear. Fear of how they would be received as that person who did that to their family voluntarily. A second study characterized the absence of people who voluntarily disappeared as, quote, 
accidentally deliberate or enacted as an unplanned crisis. A third study listed common factors which led adults to voluntarily disappear, including historic and current traumatic experiences, strong emotions related to being unable to cope, feeling trapped and powerless to talk about or share their feelings, and stress and depression. Initially, when they escaped, they felt elation, but soon that jubilant feeling was replaced by, quote, crisis mobility. They tried hard to avoid detection, to buy space and time to think, to decide whether or not to go home. I knew I had to stay away from authority, and I had to stay away from people I knew because they were already looking for me. For weeks, I just traveled about, and after every couple of days, I'd get myself some fresh clothes, go and get cleaned up and washed, and dump my other stuff. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to be found. That's the hardest thing, coming home again. Going away is easy. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up... (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. 
This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shortly after 9-11, there was at least one possible sighting of Sneha. On September 27, 2001, a reverend named Charles Bakken spoke with a woman he thought was Sneha at a doctor's office in Manhasset, Long Island. He told the NYPD that the woman strongly resembled Sneha, but he wasn't sure it was her. The woman had a strong Indian accent, he said, but Sneha did not have an accent. Neither the NYPD nor her family think the woman Botkin spotted was actually Sneha. Unfortunately, I can't interview Botkin. He died in 2010. On January 24, 2004, the NYPD got an alert that ongoing activity associated with Sneha was connected to an address in Los Angeles. By this point, Detective Stark was no longer on the case, so a different investigator picked it up. He asked the LAPD to send officers to the address. Was Sneha alive? Did she live there? Well, she didn't live there, but Ron did. It appears the alert was a false alarm, some kind of database error. Ron spoke with two LAPD cops, then called the NYPD. In July 2003, he said, he moved back to California, his home state, to restart his life, to pick up the pieces after 9-11. The new NYPD investigator asked Ron again about the mysterious phone call placed at 4.05 a.m. on 9-11 from his apartment landline to his cell phone. Ron, quote, thought about it for a while and came to the conclusion he was so distraught over his wife that he woke up still half asleep and called his cell phone to check the messages to see if she called. The investigator told Ron, quote, there's no physical evidence that supports the theory that his wife died in the World Trade Center incident. There are no witnesses to her being there. Obviously, Ron knew that, but still, he assumed it's probably how Sneha died at the Trade Center on 9-11. When I started investigating this case, one of the first things I did was search for signs of Sneha on social media and in public databases. A long shot, I know. So I was surprised when Sneha did show up in databases after 2001, linked to addresses in California, including the home where Ron lived, the address the LAPD visited. I also found a LinkedIn profile connected to one of Sneha's email addresses. Strange, for multiple reasons. LinkedIn wasn't even founded until 2003, two years after 9-11. The profile has no activity and no friends. It's listed in the United Arab Emirates, or UAE. I reached out to that Sneha, but she never responded. Complicating things and providing a probable answer there's a different Sneha and, without an E, Philip, in the UAE. The likeliest answer, then, to explain why Sneha shows up post-9-11, connected to addresses in California, and to a LinkedIn profile in the UAE, is simple. Database errors. Earlier this year, during COVID, I sat down outside, freezing, at a Brooklyn cafe with an expert on pseudocide, faking your own death. I'm Elizabeth Greenwood. I'm the author of Playing Dead, A Journey Through the World of Death Fraud. Okay, and tell us a little bit about the book. So Playing Dead is a nonfiction book about what it would take to fake your death in the 21st century. I found myself uh, mired in... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Bonnie, come here. Bonnie is Greenwood's dog. (laughs) We'll take that one again. Bonnie, come here. You're being a diva on set. Um, I found myself in a lot of student loan debt, like so many of my generation, to the tune of six figures, and wasn't really thrilled about that, wasn't really thrilled about my life decisions that brought me there. Um, So I just had the kind of fantasy of man, what if I could find a rickety country at the beach and no extradition policy and just slip through the cracks? And a friend of mine very jokingly said, oh, or you could fake your death. 
And just that idea really got me sent to the races about what is that about? Can people still do that in the 21st century with all this technology? Can that help you or hinder you? And, you know, I wanted to approach this question from a really broad purview, you know, because we have heard so many great pop culture lore about Elvis faking his death, for example. Um, so I was just really interested in approaching this topic very broadly, very holistically to see what this thing is all about. Is it possible to fake your death or to disappear and have nobody find you in 2020 or even say 20 years ago in 2000, 2001? Well, anything's possible. Uh, the problem is proving a negative is really hard to do, right? So if we think that people successfully faked their death or disappeared, we don't really have proof of that. Of course, if it's a fake death, you don't have a body you can prove to say, I did this. I think the real um, burden of proof kind of falls on people not being found, right? On people um, not having, um, you know, anything turn up to suggest that they, they did in fact fake something. So it's a kind of tricky thing to quote unquote prove. Can you talk about the top motivations people have for faking their own deaths and then kind of the breakdown between men and women? Mm -hmm. So I think that the type of fake death we hear about the most is uh, for life insurance fraud. So this is a kind of fake death for profit. It's almost too tempting, right? You see that you can take out this policy and pay a fraction of what your eventual payout would be in your death. And people think, well, I don't want to wait. I want to be around for that money. So <laughs> that's a really common one. Of course, there's a lot of life insurance fraud cases where they'll try to file the claim still without a body. Um, and those take seven years to pay out. Or people in certain cases will try to pass off bodies that are not theirs as their own which is a whole other thing. <laughs> and from my experience and from interviewing uh, various private investigators who look at this sort of thing, it, it does seem to skew very male, um, this particular type of death fraud. But in general, faking your own death is very much a male thing, right? Right, so again, this gets us into this fishy burden of proof. So the people who fake their deaths and get caught are men, <laughs> right? So people who fake their deaths and don't get caught, we don't know about, we presume they're dead. So it's very possible that these are more women who do that. But the ones that we can prove who get caught do tend to be men. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to let you speak and not laugh too much <laughs> as you're speaking, but um, why do you think women would be better at faking their own deaths? Well, I think that women, if we're going to go with the premise that women don't fake their deaths as much, which I think is true, and they don't fake their deaths because women just, you know, are culturally conditioned to be um, caretakers, to be the people who stick around. We have a term deadbeat dad. We don't have a term called deadbeat mom, even though, of course, that happens in certain cases. Women are just feel, I think, a greater burden of responsibility for their families, for their lives, for their dependents. So for a woman to fake her death, the motive, I think, would have to be much uh, more serious than trying to cash out on an insurance fraud policy, trying to light out with your second family, which is another reason men fake their deaths. Uh, so I think when women do fake their deaths, they are doing it for much more serious reasons, usually uh, for threat of violence, usually because they're really trying to save their own lives. Therefore, the stakes are just a lot higher. And, you know, I think that at least in a lot of the men that I spoke with who faked their deaths, there was this kind of like, oh, wow factor that they wanted to share with people. So they would do it, get away with it, and then like blab to people that they did it because they were so proud of themselves. I don't think women have that same ego thrust. Of course, I'm speaking in very broad generalizations right now, but when I look at the breakdown, when I look at the different cases, that, that does seem to be a truism. So in terms of motives, I, I, am I pronouncing his last name Frank Ahern? Ahern. Ahern, mm -hmm. okay. Uh, Frank said typically his client, Frank, by the way, helps people disappear. Mm -hmm. 
Um, typically client motives, number one, money, number two, violence, and the bronze medal occasionally love. Mm, yeah. And he said between 2001 to 12, he helped about 50 people disappear and charged about $30,000 per case, but that if a woman came to him in Im imminent danger that he would not charge them. Mm -hmm. That's right. So what are some of the steps that you would take to fake your own death? And is it something that you think you could do on a spur of the moment if you hadn't been planning it before and get away with it? Um, so to the latter part of your question, Absolutely not. I think to successfully fake your death, and again, this is coming from taking from the experiences of people who did fake their deaths successfully for you know a matter of years in some cases. It's really hard to speak to these ones that we just don't know that are presumed dead, of course. These are people who put in lots and lots of very thoughtful planning about what they were going to do later on, how they were going to support themselves, how they were really going to stay off the grid or at least cut off from their previous life. So to the um, former part of your question about how you would fake your death, this is a question I asked a lot to everyone from people who did it themselves to investigators to law enforcement, and they always came back with the same question to me, which is, well, who's looking for you? If you are a hedge fund person like Sam Israel III, who staged his death in 2008 after absconding um, with half a billion dollars of investor money, there, there's quite a few people looking for you, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, from the FBI to private investigators, the SEC, like you name it. If you're just a regular Joe who isn't evading uh, law enforcement or legal consequences or debt collectors like of the FBI or, you know, I don't know, mafia level or something, people who really care about their money, right? I think that it's, it's a bit easier. So it's really a question about who cares about you. That also kind of circles back to family. I mean, if you are someone who doesn't have a lot of family or is estranged from your family where where the family who's left behind and grieving and confused isn't going to hire a private investigator to look for you you know that's also a bit easier so i think that's the, that's really the big question in when it comes to how you do it and the level of subterfuge you need to employ is who's looking for you so some of these cases i'm going to list them off and then i was wondering if you could talk about them sure. so sam israel the third benny went uh john darwin and then lisa Busen. yes um can you just kind of run us through and, and tell us some about these uh, individual cases. Sure. So Sam Israel III uh, was the founder of the Bayou Hedge Fund Group. And in 2008, it came to light that it had been a rather large Ponzi scheme at that time. It was the largest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history um, until Bernie Madoff's came out, came to light just a few months later. There's a great book about Sam Israel III called Octopus by Guy Lawson, which I highly recommend because Sam faking his death is like the least crazy thing in Sam's story. So anywho, he had stolen essentially this money and it all came out. He faked his death by staging what was to appear a suicidal plunge off the Bear Mountain Bridge in upstate New York, about 30 miles north of the city. He parked his car on the bridge and in the windshield, in the dust on the windshield wrote, suicide is painless. Also happens to be the theme song from MASH. Uh, so he jumped off the bridge. He landed in construction nets that had been strung below. And, you know, kind of MacGyver style, like hand over hand, uh, crawled out to the other side, to the um, New York State side, uh, where he was picked up by an accomplice and then uh, lit out in an RV. And no one found him for almost a month. He was staying at uh, campgrounds around New York and New England. He saw himself on America's Most Wanted at one point, and he turned himself in. So even with this many people looking for him and people were pressing his family and telling them they were gonna go to jail and all this, you know, he turned himself in. So 
So was Make there, what you will of that. Was there suspicion from the start? That... Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, Frank said it best. You know, the FBI didn't show up and say, oh, he left a suicide note. Let's go home, guys. Like, you know, this, this was suspicious from the beginning, again, because of the circumstances of his life at the time. So the next one, Benny Wint, disappeared in 1989. I remember about this one. Yeah. Uh, and I, it, he left behind a grieving fiance and a four-year-old daughter from a previous marriage. I guess, I, you know, I'd ask you in relation to that, the people that whose cases you examined or the people that you interviewed, what kind of role did family play? How close they were to their family? How many people were looking for them? Were, you know, certain people were willing to do this even if they were very close to or loved members of their family? Yeah, the family piece is really interesting because in a lot of cases, some people's family members, whether it was a spouse or a son or daughter, were in on it with them, um, especially in the life insurance fraud cases, because you need someone to claim the uh, policy, the payout, right? So they'd have to be conspiring with you. In certain cases, people had no idea and, you know, did go to a great deal of trouble and expense in hiring investigators to check into all these things. But family, interestingly enough, is uh, one of the main ways in which people give themselves up because I think we have this idea that when we fake our own deaths, we're leaving behind who we were and becoming someone else. So there's an example in the book to like kind of scale it out for people who don't think about faking their deaths all the time. I mean, I guess there are people out there like that. You know, it's the same idea if you think about if you were to move to California, say, and you would be this totally different, improved, better, optimized version of yourself in California. Well, you get to California and shit, you're still you. That's the gag. <laughs> That's kind of the bad news, right? So when people fake their deaths, similarly, they think that they're going to be able to kind of leave behind all the parts of themselves that were crappy, that had committed crimes, that had made all these terrible mistakes, and still maintain some part of them that is precious and is special to them. But when you fake your death, it really means cutting off everyone and everything. It's a complete severing. So the ways in which a lot of people have gotten caught over the years is because they can't make that clean cut. They still want to call mom on her birthday. You still want to check in on your daughter and see how things are going. And unfortunately, you just can't. So we've seen a lot of people get caught in that very way. Those, those are the people who, whose families actually believe that their loved ones died. But can you talk a little bit about some of the people whose families were in on it. So John Darwin is the, yes. probably the most interesting oh, yes. part uh, or case in the book. Can you talk about him? Yeah, absolutely. So John Darwin um, is an Englishman. And in 2002, he staged his death at sea. He's kind of that phrase, which I never understand, the exception that proves the rule. He staged his death at sea and did it um, quite successfully for, I believe, almost... 2007, he's gone. Five to six years. Anyway, John Darwin, English guy, he had worked jobs um, such as being a teacher, a prison guard, kind of mid-level um, civil servant jobs. And at the time, he'd gotten himself into a bit of real estate and credit card debt. So he had the brilliant idea to stage this kayaking accident at sea collect life insurance along with um oh wow an interview <laughs> yeah <laughs> what's it called when you oh my god i'm just having such a brain fart right now when you um retire like you're this like a civil we're not service. gonna retire <laughs> no, ever um uh, what's pension? it pension yeah. yes exactly thank you <laughs> yeah. Thank you, thank you. I, it would have taken me a long time to get there. Thanks a lot. Um, and collect pensions uh, that his wife would collect after he uh, was deceased. So one day in March of 2002, Darwin packs a, his kayak with some dry clothes, some food, paddles out, has a few witnesses that see him do it, who are walking their dogs on the beach capsizes his canoe, 
they call it canoe in England. Uh, it's really a kayak here, of course. Uh, swims to shore. His wife, uh, a few hours later, picks him up. She's in on this, of course. And drives him to the train station. He takes a train to the west coast of England, where he then goes and camps out on the beach for a few months. Gets completely gaunt, like grows a, a weird beard, all this. A few months later, his wife uh, picks him up and brings him back home uh, where he lives next door to uh, his own house. So in the intervening time, she was completely playing the part of the grieving widow. They had two adult sons who thought that their dad was dead. Um, she let them believe that. And she'd started the process of starting to collect some of these payouts. So the, the crazy thing about Darwin is that he did live next door to his own house. Uh, you know, his sons would visit here and there and, you know, he'd make himself scarce at those times, of course. Just to emphasize how crazy this is, in 2002, John Darwin faked his own death. His wife was in on it. He moved home. And the entire time, his sons thought he was dead. Darwin didn't get caught. He did turn himself in eventually he says it was because he couldn't take lying to his sons anymore enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at betmgm signing up and playing is so easy simply sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with betmgm you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features live betting options and the best daily promotions in the business and with betmgm at your fingertips every play and every game matter more than ever place your money line prop and parlay bets with a king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. 
In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's talk specifically about this case. Sneha Phillip, had you heard of her before I contacted you? I had not heard of her, and I was so excited when I saw this case because I think it's completely fascinating. But no, I had not heard of her. Sneha was 31 years old on 9-11. She was a medical resident, uh, described by many people as brilliant, really smart, extroverted, but also troubled, maybe dealt with mental illness, substance abuse, affairs. Somebody who knew her told me that she really didn't want to be a doctor, that she came Mm -hmm. from a conservative, traditional Indian Mm -hmm. family that kind of pushed her into medicine, but that her love was art and poetry. Mm -hmm. It seems crazy. Like, it's it's fascinating, and because there is no physical evidence that she died at the Trade Center, there's been no DNA match, none of her belongings have been positively identified. And when you combine that with the fact of who she was as this kind of brilliant, confident person, you know, really, really smart by all accounts. And the fact that nobody knows where she stayed on the night of September 10th. If there was someone who could or would try to successfully pull this off, it seems to be her. So I I thought it was fascinating. I was reading this book and I didn't know if you were aware of this case, obviously, when I read the book, but you say... Missing persons reports in the immediate wake of the attacks climbed over 6,000, but the official lives lost totaled 2,801 at the first year of commemoration. Of those more than 3,000 misidentified deaths, 44 were claims for people who were either still alive or people who did not exist. So those 44 are numbers that come from um, what the NYPD called Operation Vulture Sweep. And that was for people who were just like very flagrant fraudsters, like inventing a spouse who they say worked at Cantor Fitzgerald. And they were really just trying to uh, very boldly exploit charities and collect money. And these were like very easily disproven. And then the next passage, this is what really got me. And I I highlighted it, (laughs) I put a bracket, and then I put a giant Uh. uh, highlighted star on the page. Imagine coming up from the subway, recognizing the tragedy, immediately computing it as an opportunity, an opening, and slinking away. Nothing filed, no attempt at life insurance, just a split-second's decision to vanish. Why 9-11? Why did you put that in the book before you were even aware of this case? Why does it fascinate you? You know, I think it in our whole collective memory, it's just such a, a moment for all of us, right? It was just like this utter chaos and you couldn't wrap your mind around it, right? So I think the idea that someone could make something, I don't want to necessarily say positive, but that someone could see this utter tragedy and destruction and see, have a kind of light bulb moment, I think maybe it's just that contrast that is really what kind of gets into my imagination at least. Something that Frank said, he used the phrase austere elegance, which stuck out to me. (laughs) Having looked at this case, what's your general impression? Man. It's so interesting. It's it's just so fascinating. I mean, there's so many really compelling loose ends. She herself is such an interesting person, I think. I think that's that's what really gets me about this case is that 
you know, she seemed to be embroiled in quite a bit of paradoxes. You know, I can't, I don't, I don't obviously know her. I don't know the situation, but, you know, it sounded like she was in a marriage, but maybe had other identities that she was trying to express at the same time. So I just think about her and I think, you know, now you said this thing about being a doctor, but really wanting to be an artist, you know, just these forces at her that were at odds. Um, and, you know, sounds by all accounts like a really brilliant and interesting person. When you think about your kind of fake death hero, which I never found in the course of my research in terms of someone who fakes their death for what seems like an altruistic or legitimate purpose, someone who's not just kind of like a, you know, bottom feeder trying to scam money out of these things. You know, she seems like she could be that person. She had maybe some interesting motivations. Also, it sounds like had some some trouble with um, perhaps substance abuse and, as you suggested, mental illness, which, again, when you think about the mindset of kind of desperation of trying to make this calculus add up, that this is the best course of action, perhaps some of those impulses could have led her there. So I think she's so interesting. And then, of course, you know, you just have that last image of her, you know, the last images of her at Century 21 buying lingerie. Of course, that's like very Lifetime movie and super, you know, scintillating, I guess. Uh, But also, I think it's that her husband said that there was perhaps someone who looked like her that was seen standing in front of the elevators of her building and then turning around. I mean, it's all just so elliptical and mysterious and just completely fascinating well the question too is like she stayed she either was alive on the night of september 10th or she wasn't Uh and most likely obviously she was alive so she stayed somewhere Mm -hmm. so where did she stay the night of september 10th i mean it's Mm -hmm. if it was anybody if it was a family member or a friend i mean obviously they would have come forward so then what what are the alternatives is that she stayed with someone with whom she was having an affair maybe and they didn't want to come forward but you start to run through your mind can am i missing anything can you think of any logical alternatives of where she might have been the night of the 10th oh me no definitely not i mean i think unfortunately when we look at these cases of women in particular uh disappearing (laughs) unfortunately it's usually because they've been abducted and oftentimes murdered unfortunately you know it from what i've seen these cases it's it's not what we want them to be. It's not this projection of sovereignty and freedom and reclamation. It's often almost always violence at the hands of someone else. Had you ever seen this postcard? No. So this Oh, that's eerie. Right? It's, this, is, this is a postcard sent to Post Secret. It says everyone who knew me before 9/11 believes I'm dead over a picture of the burning uh, twin towers. So you've never seen that before? No. So the idea that anybody out there, that there's somebody out there who used 9-11 as a cover to, to disappear, because you wouldn't even say necessarily fake their own right. death because they didn't cause 9-11. I mean, they just, do you think that that's feasible at all? Gosh, I mean, I've thought about this a lot over the years, and I have loved to kind of think about this dark fantasy of someone who's on their way to work on the morning of 9-11, gets out of the subway, sees what's going on, and somehow in that instant, in that split second, is able to do this calculus and take advantage of that situation for the means of disappearing. I think that's more in the realm still of fantasy and art. (laughs) I mean, it just seems so impossible to not only lay the groundwork. Of course, during September 11th, there was such a, a great deal of chaos that in that initial aftermath, the first few months after, you know, when things are in disarray, it seems like you probably could have, you know, been able to get away with it for for a short period of time. I don't think in the long run, though. I think there's there's so many steps that one needs to take to 
go about making a, a believable identity that's going to really hold water over the course of years. Well, when you talk about a believable identity, though, I mean, there are 11 million undocumented workers mm -hmm. in this country who don't all have, mm -hmm. quote, you know, by the legal sense, believable identities. I mean, would you really Absolutely. need to have all that lined up? I mean, what's what well, would stop you from going to maybe you know Los Angeles or, or another city and kind of blending in? I mean, with even without an ID. Sure. So if you take the example of undocumented workers, you're absolutely right. But you know, when we're talking about undocumented workers, the type of work these people are doing is usually off the books. It's usually kind of labor that is extremely difficult, often very dangerous, that people who are educated um, just wouldn't do or won't do for a long period of time. So I think when you think about having a quote-unquote believable identity, you either go very kind of analog, like in this way, where everything's off the books, you're staying completely offline, everything's in cash, or conversely, you've invested quite a bit of money and time and resources into getting pristine documents, into building a credit history of another person. So you look like a believable person who didn't just, he was born yesterday and had this, you know, you're 37 with a line of credit, right? And the third option, I guess, would be having somebody in on it who had money or who was willing to support you, right? Yeah, but what do you what do you do though over the long haul, right? Like that's the question. I mean, I think you can do that for a few years maybe. But when you think about decades, right? And if you are a person from a professional background and you do have very specific profile portfolio of interests, it's really hard to just erase all of that and become someone so, so counter to who you were. The thing is, though, the idea that Sneha used 9-11 to disappear 20 years ago and the idea that she's still alive are two different things. Studies show that missing women are at a much higher risk of dying by murder or suicide. It's depressing, I know. But even if Sneha did survive, if she did abscond, there's no guarantee that she's still alive. She could be a Jane Doe somewhere. but. If she did successfully disappear, don't we just kind of want to let her disappear in peace? That's a good question. I think if personally, yeah. I would, if I found her somehow, I, I would leave it up to her yeah. whether or not she wanted to come forward. Like, yeah. I, I, that's, a, it's a really good question. There's, there's a good ethical, well, first of all, I mean, by that point, you know, right. we've made it pretty far in yeah, the investigation. Totally. No, that's, that's a great ethical question. Um, I haven't thought too much. I don't much. know. I don't know the answer myself. I just think if she's I, able well, to get away with it for this long. What I would what I would do is personally, if I were to magically find her, I would approach her. I'd talk to her. I wouldn't, you know, all of a sudden blast out that yeah. I had found her or where she was. It's not my place to judge. Mm -hmm. And I think I probably would treat her like a source. I'd probably say I have all these questions. You fast, you absolutely fascinate me. You, you fascinate the world. <laughs> this is incredible. Totally. But I'm I'm happy to respect your anonymity and your privacy in terms of where you are, totally. what your identity is. But it's it's tough as a journalist, and I also just look at there are other people doing it and doing it. Yeah, with really like crappy. really like some of the like totally. some of the headlines from when she disappeared. Like under you know the the, the your, post. The post of it was like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the most like salacious oh, thing. Totally, and yeah. some of the, some of how it was initially reported, or even in the court case, it was like she's conducting bisexual right. acts. Oh and it's yeah. like what it's you absurd. know, is, is this like you imagine the like Puritan right. like, oh we are in a court of law like ridiculous. But um no, I mean that's that's a good question. But I guess you know, that's it's a fair ethical point. I would ask you, separate from the show, separate wouldn't this wouldn't she be the like I don't want to say the most magical example. The holy grail, absolutely. I mean, people ask me all the time, like, oh, so did you ever talk to someone who faked their death and they were still presumed dead? And no, I I never have, like, never got that phone call. <laughs> I would love to, and I'm available if anyone uh, wants to talk. But um, no, she would be 
everything to speak to that experience. If presuming she did disappear and has managed to stay gone for almost 20 years now, I would live to talk to her just to have a coffee with her and ask her what that's been like and everything and try to leave it at that. <laughs> Let her go back to her <laughs> wherever she is. Well, I guess I would ask you the same question because, you know, I'm working on this project specifically, but you worked on yeah. a, the broader mm -hmm. perspective here. How would you handle that ethically? Let's mm -hmm. say you were researching this story and you found her sitting at a, a cafe or an apartment right. in Los Angeles or something, how would how would you handle it? Oof. If she said, I don't want you to report that I am still alive, would you respect that? Or would you find a balance between... Oh, God. That's a doozy. <laughs> That's a real doozy. I think what I would do is I would try to stay on her as gingerly as possible. That's always kind of my MO and probably yours too. When you go into this kind of work, you don't easily take no for an answer. <laughs> so I think I would try to stay on her, build some trust, hopefully. I think I would try to meet or talk on the phone under the cover of total anonymity, total privacy. And I don't know, maybe it's cowardly, but maybe there's some way you can split the difference where you can say you you did speak with her, but not reveal any of the details. That's what I would see. You see, know? I agree with you. Like, yeah. it's really hard, especially this but then is her family's out there, you know, and if they would have been, who knows? I mean, maybe families usually know more than they let on. <laughs> so. Yeah, you have all these ethical and then maybe even legal implications. Yeah. So like. Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's interesting. You'd also have to be really careful about how you approach her. It, how, it couldn't just be like, I'm gonna place a phone what call and, yeah. <laughs> and then the minute that somebody gets a hold of, yeah. hold of my phone records, well, the book is playing dead. We're not live, but I'm gonna give you the MBR <laughs> treat. <laughs> my guest today on this cold COVID death winter about to snow day as we're shivering is Elizabeth Greenwood. Did I miss anything? Is there anything else you wanna say? Any important points? I don't think so. Those are really good questions. So in the end, can we rule out the idea that Sneha used 9-11 as cover to voluntarily disappear? No, I don't think so. She was a brilliant woman, unhappy with life, her marriage, and her profession. The idea that she ran away, well, the only remarkable thing about it is 9-11. Otherwise, it's not unique. Thousands of people disappear every year. The postcard says, everyone who knew me before 9-11 believes I'm dead. Change 9-11 to any other day. Is it really that crazy? Next week, we're going to release a special bonus episode. We'll be back with a brand new full episode the week after that. Homework, one. Did you successfully fake your own death and get away with it? Do you know anyone else who did? Two, did you send a 9-11 postcard to PostSecret? If so, whether it's real or a hoax, I'd love to hear from you. I'll protect your identity. You can reach us by phone at 1-833-NEW-TIPS. That's 1-833-639-8477. Again, 1-833-639-8477. 8477. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deccan is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. Cover art by Pam Peacock. Please donate to the Internet Archive. It's a vital resource. Go to archive.org slash donate. Missing Person Study participants voiced by Samantha McVeigh, Annie Reese, Brandy Supra, Paul Deccant, and Alice Chelsurawong. Special thanks to Tamika Campbell at iHeart and to Christoph Zapri in New Orleans. Also, thank you to Dr. E, Mark Bogatin, Detective Richard Stark, Elizabeth Greenwood, and Aesop Rock. Go buy Elizabeth's book, Playing Dead, A Journey Through the World of Death Fraud. She's a great writer, and it's a fun book. Elizabeth also has a brand new book coming out this month called Love Lockdown, Dating, Sex, and Marriage in America's Prisons. 
Original theme music by Aesop Rock. Check out Aesop's website at aesoprock.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at John Walzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. If you like this show, check out our first season, Missing in Alaska, about the 1972 disappearance of two congressmen. Missing on 9-11 is a co-production of iHeartRadio and Greenfort Media. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.